thank you for joining promptly. Um, we will let the early birds get the worms here, um, have um, a quick conversation up front about what in the world is happening in Washington, DC, and what are all these weird terms that we keep hearing. Um, it sounds like I have a listener. Tracy, um, but so anyways, um, we've got a lot of good stuff coming at you today. Um, one of which is um, a letter that a coalition in coalition efforts GFOA sent to Secretary Yellen. So um, last time we met, she was just, I think, freshly confirmed. Um, but I wanted to make sure that um, you all knew that we sent a letter and I think maybe our slides are frozen. Is that right, Maureen? <laughs> We, we, along with the National Association of Counties, National League of Cities, State Treasurers, um, uh, Public Water, Public Works, Public Gas, we all sent a letter to um, Treasury Secretary Yellen um, on her first day of work um, to reiterate a few things that are really important to us in the coalition. Um, now, remember, Secretary Yellen is in charge of things that are, um, you know, a, a lot of bond things. Obviously, she oversees the IRS. There are a lot of, um, incidentally, lots of things that she's going to be in control of that we need to make sure she reaches out to us if she ever has any questions. So our number one, number one priority that brings the whole coalition together, of course, is the preservation of the tax exemption on qualified municipal bonds. So she knows that. Um, she was obviously around during ARA um, as chair of the, uh, the Federal Reserve Board. Um, and so she understands the municipal market. But as we got a little bit further down into um, the weeds of the letter, of course, we brought up the restoration of the tax exemption for advanced refunding bonds. So obviously, uh, restoring um, tax exempt advanced refund is a major priority of the entire coalition. Um, this is important to her, obviously, because um, uh, arbitrage, all those things that are IRS-ish um, are going to be underneath her wing. And so we need to have competent tax counsel to help us um, ensure that when we do are successful with um, reinstating tax exempt advance refunding bonds that she's ready prime in the prompt the pump and ready to go. The other thing we brought up, of course, is this her support of small issuers. The Federal Reserve Board um, has the capacity to regulate small banks um, and large banks. Um, because her remember to mute yourself, please. Sounds like we have a little bit of uh, need to be board. shared with the team more than they are now. Okay, um, so the support of small issuers would be um, uh, ensuring that banks um, understand uh, the capital charge that are charged to banks are incentivized with um, ensuring that small issuers have access to capital, um, both at the community level and also um, at the BQ level. So bank, restoring bank qualified debt is a major component of that ask. Of course, Providing direct fiscal support is a major ask of all of us. You all just received an email from us. Um, this was an email sent around to the Hill. There may, crossing all of our fingers and our toes, if there is additional tranche of direct fiscal support from future congressional action, it's her office that's going to be managing the distribution of that. It isn't necessarily going to be her managing or at least setting the methodology that'll be set in the legislation, but but it will be the treasury 
that will be determining how the funds are spent through a series of FAQs and, and um, uh, output by the Office of the Inspector General. All of you Coronavirus Relief Fund legacy folks, all of us on the line know um, that that is um, a labor of love. And so we'll have to keep working with the Treasury on that if there is indeed uh, stimulus that passes, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then last but not least, we asked our Secretary Yellen to preserve and enhance the offices that she already has that deal with tax policy issues in the tax exempt space. We heard on Thursday, I'm sorry, Tuesday from Melissa Moy with the Office of State and Local Government Finance at uh, United States Treasury. So we supported her um, efforts to support that office. And of course, we also have um, sort of a hole in our heart for uh, <laughs> the loss of John Cross, who retired in 2019. Um, his position as the uh, Munibond expert in the tax policy team has not been filled. And so we're asking her to fill that spot because for many different reasons, including making sure that we um, have an advocate on the inside, someone who's able to help us craft tax policy for all those things that we do anticipate with enough effort will be coming back. Um, uh, so with that, that letter was received successfully, but I would also like to really quickly jump into um, one of those things that the, the only way that legislation is actually going to get to Secretary Yellen is if it passes through a special process in the legislature called reconciliation. So next slide, I've got a new fun vocabulary um, conversation here just to start out the conversation about what in the world is happening in Washington, DC. If you can click one more time, Maureen, I've got a teacup there. I was really proud. I actually have pictures on my slide. <laughs> so um, many of you know that the Senate, as it was designed by our founding fathers, the Senate, as opposed to the House, was actually designed. Um, it, it was it was designed specifically to be what George Washington had apparently told Thomas Jefferson to be the cooling saucer. All legislation can pass through the House of Representatives on a simple majority. Just one vote can actually pass legislation out. But what they determined was, if in the Senate. If there was actually a margin that 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 a majority had to procure before they could pass legislation, then it would allow for cooperation between the political parties. And what was determined in the establishment of the Senate was that that would that margin would be a 60 40 margin. So, by virtue of just the establishment of the Senate a long, long time ago, um, legislation has to pass with a 60 40 margin. That rule has been an established rule for a very long time, but there have been ways that the Senate has kind of drifted around that rule. For example, in the Obama administration, they actually changed the, the majority, changed the rule so that um, appointments, for example, could be passed with a simple 5150. So that's an important element of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, you, you absolutely have to understand that that margin of 6040 would mean that a Democratic legislation would have to procure 10 additional senators on the Republican side in order to pass any legislation through the House by normal rules. And so if you click the button one more time, Maureen, 
that's when it comes to this process called reconciliation. You probably read it, read about it a million different times. Um, it's it's being highly highly discussed in the news right now. Reconciliation is a budget process that deals with spending of taxes, spending of revenues of the federal government, raising of taxes of the federal government, or the debt limit of the federal government. Reconciliation has been used since 1980 approximately 21 times. This next time will be the 22nd time. So it's not it's not necessarily a new process. That's why I say it's probably familiar to you. You probably re recall this from 2017, probably recall it from 2015, ACA. But but it truly is a process that is leaned on um, by uh, a Senate that has narrow margins and high hopes of of future action. So the way that they do reconciliation is that the Senate has to pass a budget every year. Obviously, they're not very good at that. Sometimes they just kick the can down the road using a continuing resolution. But really, in theory, you're supposed to for every year, the Senate is supposed to pass a budget. And this right now is actually one of those rare circumstances where we're, we're situated in a year where they haven't passed a budget yet to get us to this year. So what they're doing is they're creating a budget and what the and, and the next thing that they do is they create a trigger for reconciliation and the Senate and the House then have to agree on specific instructions. Okay, so then if you click it one more time, Rain. So those quote unquote instructions are the things that are attached to the budget that really only has to pass with 51 votes. And those reconciliation instructions have a time component and they have a volume component. So the time component sets gates around those taxes, those spendings, or those debt limits of which this reconciliation is, is working on. The volume component obviously is the dollar component. Inside of those instructions, they decide how many dollars each committee of the Senate and of the House has control of. So the reconciliation instructions include time components and volume components. So the introduction of the budget happens. Instructions are attached to it, and the very next thing that happens, my favorite term in the United States Senate and House, you can click it one more time, Maureen, Votorama. And if you can click it one more time, <laughs> always reminds me of like a disco fun dance, like everybody's having fun. That's not necessarily the case. <laughs> in Votorama, not everybody is having that much fun. So early on this week, the budget was proposed by the Senate. Instructions were attached to that budget. And what happened last night, yesterday, and late into last night, the Senate was going through a process called Votorama. Because as you can imagine, not everybody's exactly happy or are particularly um, standing behind every single component of that budget. Members of the Republican Party, in fact, filed 700 amendments to the reconciliation budget, 700 amendments. 
I think they whittled that list down to a manageable 30 or 40. And the way that they whittle that down is the leadership of the committee, or, I'm sorry, the leadership of the party will often whittle it down to several statements of, of policy and possibly several statements of passage. So some of those amendments will pass, but the vast majority of them are just really political statements about this is wrong, or maybe I'd like to have this attached to it or this attached to it. And so late into last night, actually, I saw a picture of Senator Murphy out of Connecticut. He had two cans of energy drinks, one in each hand. So they were voting last night into uh, late in the night. Um, and some amendments passes, but passed, but certainly not all amendments passed. And so that voterama is the process that the Senate uses to get to that final budget bill. Now, the last thing that you'll be hearing about between now <laughs> and certainly two weeks from now is something called the bird rule. And no, it's not that kind of bird. It's, it's Senator Bird uh, from 25 years ago out of West Virginia. Senator Bird recognized that actually there is, um, this could be a runaway train, right? If you have this gigantic budget bill with gigantic instructions and you've set time periods around it and volume restrictions around it, there's a possibility that some of those provisions might go outside of the 10 years or might go outside of the $1.9 trillion as the instructions say. The bird rules say you cannot attach what they call extraneous provisions spent outside of the legislative instructions. And so what we're going to hear a lot about in the next couple of weeks is what will be what will be a bird uh, application, a bird point of order, or not a bird point of order. Try to go to right? the website so all of those while. things, if, if you could remember to mute yourself, I'm going to mute you. <laughs> so um, you're going to have lots of uh, points of orders as the budget moves through the reconciliation process based on the instructions. There's going to be points of order called bird provisions. And there's a lot of fun ways that we use the word bird, whether it's a verb or a noun or sometimes an adjective. Um, birding is something that's going to happen over the next two weeks. And there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether or not certain provisions actually fit within those instructions or if they could be birded out. Now, as the current case is, what they're looking at is the American um, recovery plan. Okay, so that obviously is a Biden administration plan. There's a framework. It's written specifically to those instructions. And Thomas will be talking a little bit about what's included in that. But the really important thing is with the recovery plan in particular, it really is $1.9 trillion spent, boom, as soon as the legislation passes. So it's very unlikely that Bird will actually apply to either the time period or um, the, the price. Bird may come up a time or two specifically around um, what types of provisions are attached to maybe 
future stimulus efforts for state and local government. So, for example, if there are contingencies that are put on future CRF funds, there's going to be some serious bird conversations about that. But those are the those are the words that we'll be using throughout the conversation today and actually over the next two weeks. Um, and I just wanted to give you that slide to give you a quick primer on reconciliation um, and what you can expect from here. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to Michael Thomas to talk a little bit more about specifically this act, where we are right now and where we expect to be in our time period on that. Thank you, Emily. Uh, greetings and happy Friday to everybody. So what I'll, I'll do here is, is talk about what's in this budget resolution, which you know we've, we've talked about this before when we've discussed um, uh, the American Rescue Plan and, and the relief uh, aid provisions uh, that President Biden and his administration want to get through. So I'm trying to link everything together here uh, to give us sort of a good holistic scope. Uh, you can see the uh, little uh, diagram there kind of showing our beginning point of the budget resolution. Uh, as Emily explained, that is every year how the Congress starts the budget process, the budget process really being uh, the, one of the central things that the Congress uh, was intended to do uh, every year, obviously, uh, uh, things have been uh, evolving over the past 10 to 20 years. And just to note before I dive in here and forget uh, regarding the history of the uh, the bird rule, if you're a nerd uh, like myself, you know, take the time and, and kind of get into why the bird rule exists. It is fascinating, but it's an exercise in sort of evolving power structures in, in our government. You know, in the uh, uh, 70s, there was at the time a, a belligerent in the executive considered by the Congress anyway, and Richard Nixon, uh, as his scandal sort of roiled and unraveled, uh, he was unable to mount really any challenges to the Congress. At the time, uh, the president kind of had the ability to decide not to spend any funds, even if Congress had legislated it, just had the power to not release them. So in 74, they passed the Congressional Budget Impoundment Act. Uh, it gave them the powers that they had, similar to what we've explained today. And then fast forward a few years from that, Senator Byrd decided, well, actually, that gives us too much power. And so they made the Byrd rule provisions and used the points of order. So anyway, just a nerd talking about nerd speak. So once the budget re resolution gets going and we jump into the Senate and the House, uh, again, falling back on what Emily explained here, um, <laughs> Byrd nerd, very nice. Uh, we can see it splits off here for the Senate into a you know, more complex system. Uh, they have limits on how long they can debate, a 20-hour cap for any specific issue brought up in reconciliation. That's what kind of does away with the issue of, of the filibuster. And then, of course, the bird rule is there to uh, sort of empower senators to police themselves by using points of order to, to rule things extraneous. Uh, and that's, you know, perhaps another discussion if we ever get there, uh, uh, if, if we kind of get into the face of the bird rule and the things get more complicated there. So the budget resolution. Budget resolutions are our frameworks. They are the outlines that legislation that will come to pass uh, sort of contains. That legislation will fill it up. Uh, those budget limits that Emily uh, referred to, uh, they are, are sort of, again, the, the outlines, the stuff how stuff gets distributed, the policy initiatives, uh, that is, that, that's sort of something to come as, as conference bills come together and the Senate and the House deliberate. Uh, but the, the budget resolution sets up that framework that can be occupied uh, by, by different legislative priorities. And in this case, it is going to be the American Rescue Plan. So, uh, as I've been saying, the resolution, and as Emily's been saying, it makes that sort of guideline plan, makes, makes the agenda for the, the resolution. 
Uh, it sets all those budget authorities for each committee. So if you have a jurisdiction of an issue like transportation or health and human services, it is out of this budget resolution that those top line numbers are, are listed that they have to work within. Uh, it provides those instructions for reconciliation. Uh, it is a concurrent resolution, which another fun vocabulary term, that's important because concurrent resolutions are not subject to signature by the president uh, and therefore are not actually enforceable by law. They are again, sort of uh, uh, guidelines for internal workings that must be followed, but they don't have to get onto the, the desk of the executive. So that kind of eliminates uh, more obstacles to get things through here. Not having uh, been submitted there, you just have to deal with the two chambers and then broach into reconciliation. And uh, again, this is all gonna be housing the American Rescue Plan. So we'll go down here and, and take a look uh, again to refresh ourselves. First and foremost, uh, this plan will have $350 billion to go towards state and local governments. Uh, you know, much Many of these funds are, again, as, as I've detailed several times, going to be uh, doled out on a formulaic basis. There will be a lot to know and learn about the funds uh, that go to state and local governments should this legislation pass as it is. Uh, there has uh, been talk of um, covering lost revenue as a result of COVID. Um, but, you know, I, again, I, I always um, demur from getting into to too much here because the last year has been uh, uh, an education on waiting for those guidelines and, and, and kind of knowing how those funds are going are gonna to fall down. Uh, but big important number there, we'll definitely have our eyes open. $1,400 direct stimulus payments, uh, that's to get up to that $2,000 number that Democrats kind of rallied around towards the end of last year. Did read just the other day um, that there, that may be a negotiation point uh, for the Biden administration coming off either that number or the scope and range of, of who would be eligible to receive those stimulus payments. Uh, the unemployment insurance support, extra 400 a week, uh, that's jumping up from what had been proposed last year. I believe that was 300 and keeping it uh, through the end of September. So on top of whatever the state insurance unemployment is going to dole out for those who are eligible, uh, support of 400 a week through September. Another big important one here, $130 billion for reopening schools. Uh, I don't have a quite exactly where it's going to go, but if memory serves, about 80 billion, uh, the vast majority will be going to those uh, K through 12 uh, public uh, schools to get them reopened COVID safe manner. Uh, another about, I think 20 billion or so that is going to be allotted for public universities and colleges, which includes community colleges. Uh, and then a separate amount of about three, 4 billion uh, that was allotted directly to the governor to be uh, doled out at their um, discretion. but generally speaking for the hardest hit school districts, that money is going to be allotted for. 40 billion here for childcare and childcare providers. I believe that's, uh, that's going to be one block of 25 billion for a emergency stabilization fund for childcare providers. Uh, and then the other 25 will go towards funding uh, the, or adding augmented funding, I should say, to the childcare and development block grant, uh, which is uh, another formulaic program that goes through the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, through two different spots, we'll have 35 billion in housing and utility relief assistance and homeless uh, aid assistance, along with extending that eviction moratorium. The way that 35 billion is gonna suss out is you'll have 5 billion that is directly earmarked for uh, home energy expenses. They're looking to get uh, those funds at 5 billion specifically doled out through 
the LIHEAP program, which I'm going to remember this, that's the Low Income Home Energy, uh, oh, something program. Well, you get the idea. Five billion through there, and then through the same program that will be doling out the 25 billion for emergency rental assistance, there'll be a portion of that. Of course, it's assistance. I don't know how that word escaped me of that, but it did. Uh, 25 billion going through the emergency rental assistance program. Uh, part of that, I believe it's 5 billion as well, will be allotted um, for, for utility assistance, and then another 5 billion that is going to be directly for homelessness assistance. 30 billion injected as support or more augmentation for the disaster relief fund through FEMA. And of course, as, as we've talked about a few times now, they're now upping to the 100% reimbursement match for, for federal reimbursement uh, and have um, extended that to deploying the National Guard and uh, are, are giving you know, very broad uh, interpretations of, of what it means to deploy the National Guard and for, uh, for what exact purposes. And at the bottom here, um, 22 billion for vaccine distribution. Now, everybody is still waiting with bated breaths for the spend plan for this 22 billion, because we, we do know of two hunks. We know that there was 22 billion that was all biomedical research and development. That money is out the door. And then there was a separate 22 billion that was meant to go to state and local governments, territories and tribes to uh, get capacity built, have that infrastructure, and then successfully distribute, safely distribute uh, the vaccine um, uh, up to capacity levels as necessary. But we await that spend plan uh, from the, uh, the director of the CDC. Uh, so keep your ears to the ground there because we certainly will. Well, that details uh, what we can expect when the bills start moving through with the budget resolution. I, I don't think I'm, I'm missing anything here unless someone wants to chime in. But otherwise, uh, I'll go ahead and, and pass it on uh, over to, is it uh, Mayreen? Michael. It's me. Michael. Yes. Close. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Uh, so I just want to take a, a couple of quick minutes here just to do a quick comparison. Uh, as Michael and, and Emily already kind of set the stage that, you know, this is what they're going to try to cram in now uh, per the instructions uh, um, that were in the resolution, all these details uh, from what we've seen in the American Rescue Plan. Now, doing a comparison because, of course, most of the focus right now is that it's going to be done through you know reconciliation there was a lot of talk before this of course that even from uh, president biden that you know they really wanted to try to do this in a bipartisan fashion and so what we saw earlier this week was a group of 10 republican moderate republican senators uh, put forward uh, an, an alternative um you know don't really want to say it was a counter offer but it was certainly a, an alternative to what they thought um, we definitely want to underscore that because uh, the challenge, at least with part of the narrative that still is being pushed, and you all have seen, and Emily mentioned that we sent out uh, the alert on the CRF prime recipient uh, perspective. Some of the narrative that is still continuing to be pushed is that, you know, there's a lot of funding that still hasn't been spent yet. <laughs> um, and so it's still out there. So let's just hold off, you know, putting all, all this additional money out there. Uh, but you'll also see that, you know, they were looking to have a much smaller pared down package. So, of course, compared to what we see in the American Rescue Plan, uh, the alternative approach was just over 600 billion, um, cuts down the direct payments to individuals to about a thousand. It 
to no surprise, it doesn't include the additional state or local aid. And that's certainly one of those points that they keep hitting on. We don't need to send additional funds to the state and locals because they haven't finished spending all the money that we sent out previously. Um, and then, of course, you know, a couple of the other programs, funding streams that were used in previous relief packages are, I guess, boosted in a way, but at much smaller numbers than what the American Rescue Plan uh, does. And then I do want to point out, at least in the American Rescue Plan, it does seem like they want to reinstitute that emergency paid leave requirement, but in the initial outline that they put out on the plan, they did note that uh, they would like to reimburse public employers for you know making that mandatory once again. So we'll see how that plays out. You know, of course, how they even for that specific provision, how they reimburse state and local governments. I mean, it could be the credit similar to what we saw for private sector employers, but. Again, until we see the text, um, we won't know how they intend to do that. Now, Michael talked a little bit about the timing. Emily mentioned that as well about some dates. They have until February 16th, the committees of jurisdiction to draft their respective bills, and then all the pieces come together and then combine into an omnibus measure and then considered. And we heard today, I believe, uh, not too long after the House voted on the budget resolution that Speaker Pelosi was aiming for the week of, of February 22nd for hopefully a floor vote for that omnibus bill. Uh, we all know, as you all know, as you see in the news that the impeachment trial is looming. Um, that's gonna start next week. The duration is unknown. Uh, we know that the trial is, or opening arguments, I think are supposed to begin on Monday. They're supposed to go through pretty much every day unless they, uh, other than Sunday, unless they otherwise come to another agreement as far as the, the, the format goes. That still doesn't change that February 16th deadline. Um, it, that All that still needs to happen per the reconciliation instructions, but it obviously can impact, impact the floor vote, uh, at least in the Senate. But the overall goal is they certainly wanna have something done by mid-March because that's when the current boost in jobless benefits expire. Um, but you know, again, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. The other thing that there was initially some chatter well, and I guess let me take one step back, you know, again, while we are hearing a lot on, on infrastructure that still doesn't completely rule out that maybe some of this might change because they will try to do something in a bipartisan fashion. There was also, also some initial chatter about infrastructure, but as you see in the current relief effort, really the infrastructure is only to the extent of funding provided in previous relief bills, just a boot, you know, a boost in that. So I'm just gonna turn it back over to Emily because of course the trillion dollar question is, well, what about infrastructure? So you wanna tell us about that? Yeah, trillion dollar question, good point. Maybe two trillion dollar questions. Maybe two, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, I did want to respond really quickly before I launch into infrastructure. Um, there is a lot of questions about the state and local relief in the chat. And, um, you know, the question is, of course, is there going to be, okay, I think there's two major questions. Number one, what's the methodology? Are we going to use just population? Are we going to use population and infection? Are we going to use population, infection, and something else? Uh, revenue loss, for example. Those were the three things that were included in the um, in, in the SMART Act, which was Senator Cassidy, Senator Menendez um, in the last Congress. All signs are pointing to the fact that they will very likely only use population at this point for methodology. Um, that said, we don't know the bottom rung. We're not, we're unsure. We know that there will be states and there will be minimum denoms for the states. 
So minimums for the smaller states um, will certainly be considered, but we're not sure of the population lower rung that's going to show up. Of course, that all that really matters in terms of, I mean, it's, it's a pool of $350 billion. It's either more concentrated on the higher population areas, or it's more diluted if you add in lower population areas to be direct recipients. So just FYI, that methodology thing is still being knocked out right now. On the other hand, the second number one question we have, of course, is are you gonna tie strings on this? <laughs> um, of course, what really matters is, as Mike said, you know, there's a lot of Republicans that are arguing that not all the money has been spent. Um, we don't think that's the case. You saw the email. We told you we have a good understanding around this. We think that a lot of the CRF is out the door. And so I think that's not necessarily a valid argument right now. But in the process of negotiation, in the process of reconciliation and conferencing certain information, they're probably going to try to tie strings around it. The most likely candidate that I've heard so far, and the team we've been talking about it for some time, is the potential for a restriction on the use of coronavirus relief funds or any future coronavirus relief funds on using them for pension payments or pension expenditures for employees. That's totally complicated. Mike and I have had this conversation <laughs> so many times now. It's so complicated. And, and you guys have told us how that's complicated. So really, it's it's talking with the Senate Finance Committee about how, you know, in principle, we see what you're trying to do, but you didn't write it tactfully into the SMART Act. You didn't write it tactfully into any previous legislation. So don't try that now, because it's only going to complicate efforts of now stimulus and also any payroll effective in the coronavirus relief fund. So that would be especially, especially hurtful. So it would only be applied. We think it doesn't save any money, but it would only be applied really to sway public opinion, we think. Um, so we, because the Democrats are leading this process and they feel really strong about reconciliation, we just don't think that that's gonna end up in this bill. Um, about reconciliation, if I could just step really right, right back to the original conversation starting out today, which was the bird rule, obviously, the bird is the word, right? So um, one question about infrastructure is, well, obviously, we've used reconciliation for this year's budget. How could we possibly have another chance, another bite at the apple for any future stimulus? Um, and the Biden administration has been very careful to say this year, this reconciliation is a recovery plan. It is not a stimulus. The $1.9 trillion that they're talking about right now is recovery. And that's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government budget ends, the year ends on September 30th, 2021. So technically, they have another bite at the apple this year. They can theoretically propose another budget prior to December, I'm sorry, prior to September 30th, 2021, that would be a second reconciliation bill. And those are the plans for the Biden administration for this stimulus effort that will include infrastructure. 
So among the things that they're talking about, as Mike said, they're talking about green, they're talking about um, a new fresh perspectives on infrastructure, but they're also talking about the old stodgy stuff, the stuff that they had talked about in Invest in America. They're talking about all of those things that, as, as we mentioned last year, the cornucopia of bond provisions. They're talking about advanced refunding. They're talking about BQ. They are actually deep and thick in the process of actually writing that second reconciliation bill. And it will include advanced refunding, BQ, it likely will include, for better or for worse, direct pay subsidy bonds. Now, we have to think though about the bird rule in the context of our initiatives in particular. And the team and I were just actually talking about this. Bird means that the cost can't go outside of the instructions. So think about reinstating advanced refunding. We all know that that costs money to the federal government. In 2017, it was estimated to cost $17 billion. In the Invest in America Act, it was estimated to cost $14 billion. So if you put it in the uh, reconciliation bill for the second stimulus for this year, what they're gonna have to do is they're gonna have to craft a way to write that advance refunding to fit in there so that the cost doesn't leak outside of the instructions. What that means is advance refunding can't go beyond 10 years. And what it more likely means is that advance refunding will probably be shored up so that the money figure fits within reconciliation. It's kind of like the opposite of what happened in 2017. They got rid of it in 2017 to pay for reconciliation instructions for that tax, the tax decrease. In this case, they're going to reinstate advance refunding, but they need to find something to pay for it to come back. It's frustrating, but it's a fact of how reconciliation works and how Bird is going to apply here. What we'll very likely see is a reinstatement of advanced refunding for probably eight years, probably a reinstatement of BQ for eight years. You also have to consider those advanced refundings, if there is an eight year horizon, and I know GFOA members well, people are gonna, people are gonna be advanced refunding like crazy. If, if, if the rates are right, people are gonna be advanced, tax exempt advanced refunding like crazy and they're going to do it within that window, and they're going to do 15, 20-year bonds within that window, right? So in the cost figure of the reconciliation instructions, they're gonna to have to write the advance refunding so that it shores up to fit within those instructions. Just wanted to like put that there on the radar. These are real conversations happening at the Senate Finance Committee and at Ways and Means right now, because the question is, how do we write stuff into the second stimulus, the stimulus that includes infrastructure, and fit it within the parameters, the rules, the instructions of that reconciliation effort? So it's, it's frustrating. We are working as hard as we can to try to make sure that it doesn't necessarily have to float within reconciliation. We sure as heck would love to have an advance refunding that could pass 6040. Um, but that's certainly something that we are working on and we will be focused on in 2021. And so with that, I'll turn it over to who am I turning it over to? Maureen. 
<laughs> I, was, I was waiting and there was this pause. I was like, well, okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, so uh, thank you, Emily, and good afternoon, everyone. So the last time we met, we had discussed the release of the FAQ document by the Treasury on the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. As you know, this included 14 questions that barely scratched the surface of the many, many questions that remained unanswered regarding the program. Um, so the Treasury had also invited GFOA to then join in on an interagency call to contribute feedback on the FAQ document on behalf of our members who qualified for the program, which we did, um, like we told you last week, in an eight-page document. So uh, the update is basically that there really is no update, but what we can tell you is that yesterday we received a note from the Treasury confirming that they had indeed received the document we'd sent over, reviewed it, and we're working to update their FAQs as soon as possible. And hopefully we took that as, um, you know, uh, a ray of sunshine, some hope, basically saying that, yeah, you're going to find some of the stuff that, you know, a lot of your members asked about in the next edition of the FAQs. So we were not given um, an exact date for when to expect the FAQs, but just told that this is at the top of their list of priorities. Um, so as of today, like I said, there there has not been an update, but hopefully next week we might see something. Now we'll move on to a little update on the coronavirus relief fund as it relates to uh, additional aid to state and local governments or um, the lack of aid to state and locals. As Michael explained earlier, the new GOP uh, proposal failed to include additional aid for state and locals. And the reason is largely believed to be, number one, that there are still funds remaining from pre-existing federal programs, such as the CRF. And number two, that the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 provided more support through federal programs um, that are being pushed out now. So, uh, for example, ERA could be included in that. So naturally, this is a, a bit of an oversimplification of what the reality is, because many of you who have journeyed along with us in the saga of what was the CRF um, know that there were many obstacles that came with it. And the extension, while great and definitely something we urged and um, advocated for, the lack of additional aid should not be confused with remaining funds. And so um, the assumption that many governments have not spent their funds, uh, that's that's kind of what what we're trying to hit on and trying to explain from here on out that, that that's not really true because um, not only from what we gathered in the CRF survey that we did back in August, but even as recently as our Monday CRF local government form calls, we learned that most governments have obligated their funds. So technically, while the funds may not have officially been spent, the word spent, the point is that they are obligated. So they are set to go towards a specific expenditure, which means that there isn't a whole lot of money from the CRF that could go towards ongoing pandemic-related issues that state and locals would be facing well into 2021. So what you're looking at right now is a very shortened version of what we had included in our email to Congress. Of course, the email was more detailed, but there's only so much I can fit into a slide. So some key results we, um, we wanted to reiterate from our August CRF survey from the uh, report that we released in October was that, of course, number one, 91% of respondents had stated that they would benefit from additional federal aid, specifically unrestricted aid, which was requested to offset the revenue losses, as well as the need for um, assistance, assistance past December 30th. Now, just note that because it says assistance past December 30th. So we got the extension, we didn't really get the assistance. 
Um, and then 75% of respondents had found the restrictions on the use of CRR funds, such as the inability to use funds on the lost uh, on lost revenue to be their biggest challenge. Then 62% of respondents had pointed out that the FAQs and the guidance from the Treasury had been their biggest challenge in spending CRF allocations. And for this point, we really expanded to explain that the governments were left for extended periods of times just waiting for additional guidance on how to use these funds. But finally, once it was released, by the end of the year, most recipients were able to obligate a majority of the funds. If any of you recall from the actual report, there was, I wish I'd included the actual uh, graphic here, but there was a graph that kind of showed um, a comparison of how much, how much money had been spent versus obligated. And the vast majority had obligated. So that was about um, the 50 to 75%, and then the 75 to 100%, those were the biggest amounts. And that was demonstrating obligated funds. Spent was a little on the other end because, of course, guidance was still um, being waited on. So then finally, um, we also talked about how the vast majority of recipients stated in the August survey. Um, that was kind of what we reiterated about the that what I read <laughs> what I reiterated about the, the graph, you know, that 75 to 100 percent of the funds had already been committed to purchases um, for eligible goods and services or obligated by the end of 2020. And then 82 percent of surveyed prime recipients had noted that the funds would be fully spent by December 30th, 2020. Now, of course, um, not everyone has spent the funds, but the biggest point, the biggest takeaway here is that most funds have been obligated. Um, so that's that's really the takeaway. And then finally, we pointed out the concern over sales tax and property tax and emphasized how there are, um, you know, these are important resources for local governments that have been greatly compromised due to the pandemic. So that's just uh, an update on our continued efforts for additional aid for state and local governments. We do again encourage all of you to reach out to your members of Congress and continue to voice your concerns. You know, the more noise that's made over this, the more likely something will get done about it. So we will certainly continue our efforts with that. But that was just something we wanted to share. Um, and now we can move on to uh, let's talk a little bit about the FEMA rule change. Some of you have already heard about this, but. Uh, for everyone who is not aware, FEMA is proposing a rule change to revise the uh, estimated cost of assistance that determines disaster declarations for state, locals, um, and U.S. territories. So the background is that initially FEMA had evaluated the cost of federal and non-federal public assistance using per capita dollar amounts, which was set at $1 in 1986. This would then be adjusted for inflation for the first time in 1999 and then annually thereon. So as of 2019, the amount per capita um, stands at $1.50, I, I believe. I, yes, $1.50. So now also something that happened in 1999, very important, FEMA had determined that $1 million would be the minimum threshold of damages that states would be able to recover through their own resources. So basically, unless there was over $1 million in damages from the disaster, FEMA would not recommend that the president authorize the public assistance program. However, remember this was in 1999 and this minimum threshold has not been adjusted for inflation or changed ever since then. In the span of the 22 years that have, wait, 1999, 2021, 22, yes. Yes, 22 years. I think I just saw Michael Thomas face bomb. Listen, it's been a long day, it's Friday, give me a break. In the 22 years that have passed since 1999, um, you know, we've seen some atrocious disasters. I mean, just 2017, 
The 2017 hurricane season alone has set a record for the costliest hurricane season ever. Um, and no one can deny the disasters have become more frequent over the years. So in the proposed rule change, FEMA is basically saying that it would like to raise the per capita indicator and the minimum threshold for the estimated cost of assistance to then better assess the capabilities of states before they can request disaster declarations and assistance from the public assistance program. Um, and basically what they're saying is that the per capita amount as it stands right now is not reflective of states resources and fiscal capacity to recover from a disaster. Um, and then again, on the point of the $1 million uh, threshold that has not been increased there. They also point out that, um, you know, it's not reflective of the increase in government's budgets and expenditures and how things operate today in the present day. So um, the law itself states that federal assistance is only supposed to come into play when an event is beyond the capabilities of the state of, um, sorry, let me say that again, beyond the capabilities of the state or the affected local governments. So um, basically, the takeaway is that uh, FEMA wants to put in this rule change. They want to change these uh, initial assessments, the way that they assess things regarding disaster declarations. Of course, um, there is, and let me just put it in the chat. There you go. So for additional information, uh, please do check out the link that I put in the chat. FEMA is welcoming comments on the proposed rule change, uh, which are due February 12th. Please feel free to contribute if you would like, or you can also email me your comments and we can try to incorporate those. As of now, where GFOA stands is that we agreed to be part of a coalition letter with some of our sister organizations. Um, but of course, that's, that's still going on. That's in the process. Um, and hopefully I'll have more updates regarding that in our next meeting. Uh, I think, of course, um, you all would, you know, better know how you feel about this proposed rule change, which is why uh, comments would be very interesting to hear. From you, but I would assume that there might be some concern for uh, state and local governments, you know, because now that FEMA's kind of putting its fist down on, like, you know, uh, you got to meet, you have to, we're going to assess you in this way or that way, and you have to exceed this this amount of damages to really qualify for federal assistance after a disaster. I'm sure there is, uh, I'm sure many would be interested in contributing. So feel free to send me an email. I will, I'm sure most of you know my email. I'm just going to drop it in the chat again. Um, that's my email. Feel free to send me your comments or um, submit them yourself. Um, and then finally, and my PowerPoint froze. There we go. <laughs> now, finally, I just want to remind everyone that GFOA is holding their first annual federal funds fair on March 22nd and March 24th. This is going to be 1 to 5 p.m. Eastern time um, each day where we will have federal agencies present on grants available for state and local governments. Um, we did reach out to committee members, if you recall, a couple months ago for recommendations and have based our outreach on those recommendations. So stay tuned for more confirmations um, on which agencies are speaking. As of now, we have USDA, EPA, and FEMA, and we'll be confirming the remaining five very soon. I will now hand it off to Michael Thomas for the EOG update. Thanks, Mary. Well, not so much an update as an announcement that on February 26th, three weeks from today, we will have uh, an event to uh, showcase the second book of the three book series that GFOA has been working on and issuing from uh, the Elected Officials Guide series. This one is entitled Managing Your Community's Assets, Capital Planning and Debt. 
I'm very excited about this event, what we uh, will be having to show you guys and anyone who attends. This is uh, the last event had, I think, over six or 700 people uh, register and enjoy. Uh, we will have a tandem presentation uh, from our very own uh, Joanne Giddings and a former council member from the great city of Aurora, Colorado, discuss working together uh, through examination of a, of a project in their district and, and kind of how uh, working from an elected official's point of view and a, and a finance officer's point of view can have obstacles, how they can grow together, uh, but really excited to have it, really excited to get some eyes on it. Uh, I know that my, uh, my contributors are, are, are thrilled as well. So please look for registration to open up for that uh, here early next week. This is, this is really fresh off the presses uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you there. Great, thank you. So I see um, one question in the chat that hasn't been answered yet, or please, 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 if I'm overlooking um, a chat, um, please speak up. But Melanie Keaton out of San Antonio, um, Melanie, you're trying to reconcile information that you received from NLIHC, which is National Low Income Housing Coalition, along with uh, communication that you're receiving from FEMA about past um, past activity. Now, um, as I recall, on our CRF forum, um, uh, there were several folks who had estimated uh, prior non-covered events and had submitted those prior non-covered events as estimates. Um, are, are, are you, um, so, so that was your takeaway that they're just not reconciling? Uh, sort of, I guess. And the, the email you sent on the FEMA new updates uh, kind of said the same thing. So, so FEMA is basically going back and saying, okay, any cost from January 2020, uh, really all the way through now September 2021 with this new uh, adjustment um, that's related to COVID is all eligible, if you will, for reimbursement at the 100%. But um, so where that's come up is, um, my council, and I think we've had some members mention this in various discussions here, is my council like, well, then let's strip out the homeless cost that we previously funded with CRF dollars and let's put it to FEMA so that I can now free up CRF dollars again for something mm -hmm. else. And um, and that's why we went back as soon as we saw this communication um, and went back to the FEMA and it's like, wait, um, is this what you're intending? And they said, if costs have already been covered with another funding source, you can't use FEMA. So it's this um, kind of just this, I guess they're not being clear and saying, yes, you can cover prior costs. So long as you haven't already funded it with another funding source, or I should say another federal or state funding source, you know, if you use your if you use your local dollars and you're sitting on IOUs, you you haven't funded it. So I would assume you can submit that. But but it's this everybody wants to keep pulling from grant dollars we've already used, um, and we're trying personally from an accounting side, I'm trying to tell them no, let's close it, CRF, we need to get rid of. <laughs> so. Uh, for various reasons, including this Republican thing, uh, saying we haven't spent, um, and council's being really picky about trying to push us, and, and so <laughs> that's the that's the reconciliation thing I was talking about. Yeah, 
Well, I, I, Melanie, thank you for bringing that to our attention. It looks like Tim Yule, uh, Mary and Jay have both had outreach with FEMA. So we're going to work with our um, partners at NACO, NLC, AWWA, uh, NACWA, make sure that we um, get a good sense. Uh, maybe we can get some kind of um, assurance from FEMA, some kind of communication from FEMA that would at least provide some clarity on that um, because it sounds like you're hearing two different things. So thank you for um, bringing that to our attention. And Emily, if, if I might just read off um, a statement that came from FEMA just a couple of days ago, just a little excerpt here. This is regarding exactly what we're discussing here. And mm -hmm. I quote, this means that all work eligible under FEMA's existing COVID-19 policies, including increasing medical capacity, non-congregate sheltering, and emergency feeding distribution will be reimbursed at 100% federal share. For projects that have already been approved, FEMA will amend the existing awards to adjust the federal funding amounts. No action will be required by the applicants. So to my understanding, it's, I mean, the, the awards, the money you would get to cover the uh, augmented match would be programs that are already in process that money has already been received for it's just moving you that was it 20 percent more to cover uh that match so michael if i'm understanding you right it's only if you've already submitted a pw to fema and at the time you're planning a 75 25 now they're going to go ahead and just cover the 100 percent. but if you did not submit a pw it, you can't go back and do those retro costs I think that's pretty close. Um, we're, I think I'm, we're 100% on the first part of that, that you're going to see that automatically funds distributed to make up for that percentage difference with ones that have already been qualified and are already, you know, have, have funds doled out. The other part of that, I think, you know, that could change depending on guidance uh, coming out in the coming weeks. But at the very least, um, FEMA has always, over this, this whole uh, event, maintained that if the money has come from another federal force and it's been approved there, we will not cover it. Again, we will confirm with our partners um, and make sure to get back with you. Thank you, Thomas, and, and thank you, Melanie. Um, so one other thing, we're three minutes away. Maureen Haroon put her email address in there for you to contact her, but I would highly recommend that you also use that email address to wish her a happy birthday today. Mm -hmm. Um, for all that she does for us here in Washington and all that she does for JFOA, uh, we appreciate you. And um, anyways, that's all we have for you today. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on stuff. And also, um, if again, if you're motivated to reach out to your member of Congress about um, that, that CRF isn't spent kind of myth that seems to be going around, now's the time. We're here to help. Please let us know how we can be helpful. Thanks, everyone.